This is Created Equal Declarations, extended conversations with some of our sources. When we first spoke with author and pastor Jim Wallace, something he said really stuck with us. He said, quote, to benefit from oppression is to be responsible for changing it. Wallace, a white man, has written many books about the social and spiritual obligation of the white majority in America to stand against racism and actively participate in working toward abolishing its effects. I spoke with Jim recently about his quest to change the hearts and minds of white people in this country about the need for empathy in the discussion about race. Here's our conversation. Let's talk about your book, the, just the, the, the title, uh, America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America. I'm not sure you could put another hot-button word in that <laughs> title. <laughs> and sort of where I want to start the conversation is, is with that idea of those being difficult words for people to say, for people to hear, and for people to engage in meaningful conversation about what they mean historically and what they mean now. Really, your book uh, and your work uh, over a long period of time is about trying to push us, all of us, uh, into that space where it is okay to talk about these things and it is okay to think about those things. And even when we are uncomfortable, uh, we sort of push through and say, this is important, this is about justice and therefore mm -hmm. we've got to we've got to we've got to deal with it you know it's been interesting to have these really town meetings the book events become town meetings and they've been very multiracial multicultural but also intergenerational very very broad in the generations and you know i walk away from those conversations feeling actually quite hopeful about the energy and the honesty that i'm feeling and we're always asking, what does it mean in this city, in this town? Yeah. And then I go home to where I'm staying or a hotel, and I watch the national conversation. <laughs> and it's so alarming, depressing, and scary. But we're at, as you say, well, this moment. This is a moment. And I think, as the kids tell me, we got to get the story right. I mean, if we're just talking about race as if there's some sort of neutral territory here and we just need to be nice to each other, we've got to get the story right. And the original sin, it isn't just slavery, because there were other slaveries. The Greeks were slaves to the sure. Romans, but the Greek slaves tutored Roman elite children. <laughs> right. And no one took away their families and yes. destroyed their humanity. Right. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but it was the Christians who said, you can't do what we're doing to indigenous people and to kidnap Africans to make them into chattel property to create the greatest economic resource in this nation's beginning. You can't do that to human beings those made in the image of God. So you got to throw away Imago Dei, right. throw away the image of God, and say these people are less than human. That was the sin yes. way back when. And, and so the founding principle of this nation was indigenous and black lives don't matter. Right. That's and, what we said. And That's we, principle. And, I mean, we can point, uh, I mean, uh, of course, there, there are lots of sort of uh, narrative examples of, uh, as you point out, in the church, for instance, this, mm -hmm. this struggle over uh, that that decision to mm -hmm. dehumanize these populations. But I mean, we have historical documents that that helped forge this nation that reinforce that. Uh, if you think of the Three Fifths Compromise uh, in its most sort of naked and literal terms, it is a dehumanization of 
African American uh, uh, at that point slaves. I mean, uh, you are not a person. You are three fifths. And for those who think that's just old history, why you're bringing up the old history? <laughs> this past year in Ferguson, one night on the streets, talking to a young African American teenager, he said to me, "I still feel like I'm treated." like three-fifths of a person. This is very ex- existential to him. Yeah. This is an old history. So in all our social systems, the original sin still lingers. Our policing, our criminal justice system, education, economics. When we are, you know, Brian Stevenson, who wrote the foreword of the book, says, mm-hmm. uh, slavery never ended, it just evolved. And so now in mass incarceration, leading to massive... Uh, Voter disenfranchisement, linking those two. Yeah. This is a, or or voter re- regulations. That North Carolina just got their their regulations overturned, and the court said this was a, a deliberate targeting of African American voters. So so though the dehumanizing, less than racial difference and racial diminishment, this is the original sin, and that's still with us. And for sin, you know, the word in my tradition is repent. <laughs> repent doesn't mean feeling bad or sorry. <laughs> right. That's too easy, right? Yeah. You feel bad, you feel shame, and then you go and watch TV. Right? <laughs> no, it means turning around and going in a whole new direction. So building a bridge to a new America, which I find a lot of young people really excited about, really yeah. wanting to build that bridge. Yeah. The biggest, as you know well, the biggest political fact in America right now is that we're like 20, 30 years away from from no longer being a white majority sure. nation. Yeah. We're going to be a majority Middle of Middle of this minorities. century, it will be majority minority. And that's underneath all of our politics, underneath the presidential election, underneath immigration reform, underneath the last conversation you, you just had. Yeah. So how are we becoming a new nation, which I think a new generation is really wanting to become? They're eager. They're eager they to are. do that, yeah. And Jim, I want to sort of focus in on that point about uh, feeling accused, which I think is one of the real problems that 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 we have when we try to talk about race. Uh, that that if I, for instance, uh, write a column uh, as I did a few weeks ago about that voter ID law in mm-hmm. North Carolina that you were talking about, and note that uh, the the Fourth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals uh, went through and and documented the ways that North Carolina legislators had gone out of their way to figure out which uh, which restrictions would affect black voters and then put those restrictions in the law and left the others out. I mean, there, there isn't a whole lot of ambiguity to, to, to what happened there. And yet, if I write a column about that, as I did, the response to me is, why are you talking about race? And uh, you are the racist because you keep bringing this up. It's not about race. It's about politics. Uh, it's about something else. And you are racializing this uh, for your own purposes. A- at the root of those, those responses is this feeling of accusation. I think people feel as though my column about that or my discussion about that is accusing them of being part of the systemic and sort of institutional racism that exists here in America. And I, I feel like we do have to get past that because if you feel accused, you're defensive. And it, it's really difficult to get to a space where uh, you're willing to talk and, and discuss and, and think about alternatives. Uh, how, do we, how do we take accusation or the feeling of, of individual accusation 
out of the equation enough to get people to see that greater context, that we're all part of these systems that reinforce inequality? That's a great question. Uh, I'm speaking as a, a you know, Townhouse Coates talks about those Americans who believe they're white, you know? uh-huh. but I'm speaking in the categories uh, as, as a white Christian male, uh-huh. all kinds of privilege all over that. It gets distracting when people want to make this an individual issue. Flint showed us that racism is in the air we breathe and the water we drink. It's the toxicity of the culture. So for whites to say, wait, I'm not a racist, am I? I mean, my people came after slaves, or what are you saying about me? And no one, no one is saying that every white person uh, uh, is to blame for everything that's happened to every black person. But here's the principle, to benefit from oppression is to be responsible for changing it. To benefit from it is not that you are accused of doing it all, but is to be responsible for changing it. So yeah. this is how I'm here. I'm here in Detroit, actually, for my 50th high school reunion uh-huh. <laughs> at Southfield High School. Uh-huh. So it's very personal <laughs> being here. And my story about race is very much connected to Detroit. So I'm 15, living in Southfield, which was then a very white world. White school, white church, white and white, white by design. We should make that clear. Oh yeah. Well, right? by, let me just say by the, law and uh, then covenant uh, and then culture. Let, let's make the point you, you you just made. Our racial geography that separates us uh, is not by accident. It's by policy. Yeah. We have been separated from each other by policy. Right. So we don't know each other's stories or each other's stories. So I'm out there. And I'm now 15, I'm paying attention to my city, I'm reading the papers, I'm listening to the news, I'm asking questions, and something very big seemed very wrong in my city, in my country, and nobody in my white world was talking about it. Nobody. So I had to go into the city, and I took jobs alongside young guys in the city my age, but they're black and I was white, and I learned that we had grown up in the, we born in the same city, but grown up in different countries. So I'm a Detroit Edison. I'm a janitor making money for college. And, you know, a big, strong guy moving furniture around. And one of my buddies was named Butch. And, and, and he was just like me, loved to move, move furniture. And I'm so old, Steve, that we had elevator operators in those days. That's, that's how old I am. So when they were, the operators were, were sick or on, on vacation, Butch and I would take over. And, and on my breaks, you had to have breaks and be an elevator. I would ride up and down with him in his elevator and talk. And his breaks, he'd come and ride up and down with me. Took me home to meet his mother. She's like my mother. She's not militant, political, worried about her son's political views, getting him in trouble. <laughs> and she says, oh, here's all the men in my family who've had these issues with the Detroit police. My grandfather, my father, my husband who's passed, and now Butch. And here's, here's what she said to me that, that night. She said, so I tell my kids, if you're lost and can't find your way home, and see a policeman, duck under a stairwell, hide behind a building, wait till he passes, and then find your way home. Right. When she said that, I remember this vividly, <laughs> 50 years ago. When she said that, my mother's words echoed in my head to her five kids. Yeah. If you ever lost, can't find your way home, look for a find policeman. Find a policeman, yeah. Policeman is yeah. your friend. Yeah. So those experiences Incredible. are what yeah. change yeah. your worldview. That was Jim Wallace, pastor and author of many books, including America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and The Bridge to a New America. You can learn more about Jim's work at sojo.net, a website for sojourners, faith in action for social justice. I'm Stephen Henderson. 
Thanks for listening.